All right, well, welcome to what I think is episode 46 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. A bit of a different episode again today because Pastor Clayton is out of the office on vacation, so it is just me. Uh, We're continuing in our readings. We've left the Gospels, uh, completed our reading of the Gospels, and are moving into further into the book of Acts and uh, beginning to read some of Paul's letters. So this coming week, we're going to read Galatians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, excuse me, and I think just a very little bit of the first couple chapters of 1st Corinthians. But otherwise, like I said, we're also, we're getting into some of Paul's letters here, Galatians and, and Thessalonians, the two Thessalonians specifically. And I think it's good. We've tried to do this. We haven't always remembered to do it, but as we've kind of journeyed across the library of scripture and into these different genres or these different types of writing, we've tried to speak a little bit into just the the form itself and why uh, this sort of thing was used. So when you think about the Gospels and Acts, those are obviously, you know, what we would still recognize today as historical books, history books. In the case of the Gospels, you know, something closer to what we think of as biography. Uh, they, they, they don't contain a lot of the details that modern biographies do. Um, they're, they're obviously much more focused on Jesus's actions and not his, his actions and his teaching, not so much on his interior state or even his formation, right? Like we're not given much insight into, you know, and then this thing happened to Jesus and that taught him this valuable lesson that later on he da 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 some of that is just the difference in emphasis between what ancient biographies would focus on and then and then what modern biographies do. Some of it, I think, obviously, is that that God chose the the mode of ancient biography to to convey the gospel in, you know. And so I think that we're just not it's just not as important for us to know, you know, about Jesus's interior state uh, or or the, some of these other things. But then an Acts is, is similar. Acts focuses on, it, I mean, it's called the Acts of the Apostles, not the interior emotions of the Apostles. And so it focuses on the early actions of the the first Christian leaders, first generation of Apostles, and obviously the Acts of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So it's, it, it fits, I think, within the realm of, of, of what we would consider to be a history book. And really the rest of the New Testament are letters, right? So these are sh- much shorter than, than most of the other books of the Bible. Uh, they are messages written by Paul or some of the other apostles, and often uh, not actually just by Paul, but by Paul, and then he will list co-authors, I've got 2 Thessalonians open in front of me right now, and the very first line of that says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the assembly of the Thessalonians. So, I mean, I think I don't think we're wrong to say that these are Paul's letters. He was obviously the prime uh, uh, author, but as there were other people with him speaking into what he was going to say, you know, we, we shouldn't imagine because this is just not true to the historical context. We shouldn't imagine that Paul is sitting somewhere alone, writing out a letter, you know, at one time, you know, that that would not be the case. He wrote these letters kind of on the road while they're moving around. And we just know, you know, from their station and class of, of people that the, that Paul's kind of level of society, they were really never alone. There were always people around like Timothy or Sylvanus or, or, or other people that traveled with him. And so I think it'd be much, it, it's probably closer to the truth to imagine Paul 
you know, they're sitting around a table at a tavern, you know, while they're traveling. Timothy and Sylvanus are there and they're discussing some of these issues that they've heard, you know, that the Thessalonian church is having. You know, so those two guys and perhaps others as well are are kind of speaking into what Paul's going to say. And I think that all of that, you know, the Holy Spirit is involved in all of that. You know, I don't think it takes away at, at all from our understanding of inspiration to know that, that these letters were really group efforts. Um, and in the production themselves, right, we know that Paul didn't write, personally write the letters, that he dictated them. Uh, to ascribe the Greek word is an, an amenuensis. I like to say an Amanda Jensen just to bother Clayton, but basically a professional scribe. Paper was expensive, you know, so you wanted to u- use as little as possible. People couldn't, most people couldn't read or write anyway. And so you hired somebody, a professional reader and writer, so that they could make sure the letters were as legible as possible, as small as possible, to cram as much as you could, you know, uh, just from an expense point of view. So that's kind of the a little bit of the historical and cultural background. You know, the Roman Empire maintained pretty good roads and a pretty good postal system. So, I mean, I think part of why we see letters here become the predominant form of scripture towards the end is just because they could be. The, the world was stable, the society was stable enough that, that you could trust that you if you wrote a letter in Corinth, mailed it to Thessaly, you know, or Thessalonica, I should say, that it would get there. And we also saw this, you know, towards the end of the Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah, a lot more, or some of those books also contain letters. I think for the same reason, because the Persian Empire had had brought the stability required for a postal system to actually function um, so we see the same thing in the in the Roman world uh, in Paul's day. And really what the letters, you know, we don't write letters hardly ever anymore. I mean, we'll give people like cards, but that's not really, it is and it isn't. It's not really the same thing. That, you know, letter writing as a, a practice, I think, was a way to convey your presence across distance. Right. So Paul couldn't just snap his fingers and travel to these churches. He couldn't get on an airplane or a train and get there in a few hours or a few. I mean, a few days. It would take weeks of travel to get anywhere. You know, he was often in ill health, it seems. And so, yeah, the, the letters were a way for him to to be present. And I think he says this in Galatians, right? Present in the spirit, you know, uh, that to, to be present with them, to kind of help them, to pastor them. To, to be an apostle for them, even though he personally couldn't actually be there. And I think kind of taking the long view, that makes a lot of sense because now here we are vastly separated from Paul ge- geographically, you know, uh, Italy and, and Greece are on the other side of the planet from us. But then even more so, we are separated from him by, you know, 1900 years of, <laughs> of time, you know, nearly 2000 years of time. And yet still, Paul can can be present, you know, through his letters to our church, to all the churches. You know, you think about the the massive, tremendous impact that, that St. Paul has had on Christianity, even though he's been dead for most of it. <laughs> and of course, we know, you know, yes, it, you know, Paul was the, the prime author of these letters and kind of the one who set the, the agenda, but we trust that the Holy Spirit was speaking through him. You know, and we also, Paul references... 
uh, other letters that he wrote. You know, in First Corinthians, he references a previous letter that he wrote back and forth to the Corinthians. We don't have that one. You know, that that's not preserved. And so it's not the case that every letter that Paul wrote or that, that Paul and his team wrote was inspired by God. Well, no, because they weren't all saved. They weren't all revered in the ways that these were. Uh, they weren't all saved and kept by the Christian communities. You know, and, and what we see in the early, very earliest centuries of the church is that people would, I mean, many of the churches started out as synagogues that then most of the Jewish people became Christian and then some Gentiles tagged along. Or the Jewish Judean Christians left their synagogue, took some of the scrolls with them, and then as they kind of formed what we would call a church meeting somebody's house, they then would add to their little library, you know, copies of Paul's letters. And it was, it's right around this time that we start to see the emergence of what we think of when we say the word book, meaning, you know, leaves of paper that are bound on one end, you know, with a cover um, in, in kind of historical or archaeological contexts. That thing is called a codex. You probably don't need to know that, but uh, just that, you know. And Paul, in, other, in some parts of his letters, references, I think, in one of the Timothys that he left some scrolls, you know, somewhere else and wants somebody to, Eurastus maybe, wants, wants him to bring them to him. You know, and so Paul was sitting right at the, the border, the horizon of, of leaving behind scrolls as the way to convey written information and into these things called codexes or what we today call books. And the early Christians were some of the first, the earliest adopters of the modern book. Some people even think that the early Christians invented the codex form so that they could bind together the pages of Paul's letters and kind of carry them all, you know, just as a unit. You know, you think of like the Gideon's Bibles, the little pocket Bibles, you know, that are just the Gospels or Proverbs or the Psalms or Proverbs. It's like, that's actually a really ancient idea. The very, very first Christians you know, if they had any written scripture at all, it probably would have been a little bound together copies of Paul's letters and maybe some of the Psalms or Paul's letters and, you know, maybe some portions of something else. Um, and so again, that's just, just that's just some, some of the general background uh, uh, kind of information about these letters. And, you know, and Acts describes that Paul takes several journeys around the Mediterranean world you know, because he has received this calling from Jesus directly to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And so Paul understands, and we see in Galatians, perhaps understands more quickly or more clearly than even Peter and some of Jesus's original disciples, you know, that this message of the good news in Jesus' name is not just for the Jewish people, for the Judean people, but really is meant for all people. segues us into talking about the letter to the Galatians, which uh, I think there's strong evidence to suggest, you know, different scholars will say Galatians is first or Thessalonians is first. We don't really know, you know, and I don't know if it's super duper matters, but these are the earliest and that's why they're, they're coming up first in the uh, uh, chronological reading plan. You know, and I think that they... It's interesting because they, they, they both deal with really different, slightly different issues. But the, the issues that Galatians discusses seems to be kind of a major thing that comes up throughout Paul's letters. And that would really be, you know, who or how do you become part of God's covenant people? Who can be part of God's covenant people? Now, often 
you know, I think especially with the book of Galatians, we approach it kind of thinking that, okay, this is the letter where Paul talks, where Paul talks about how you cannot earn your salvation. And I think that is part of what's happening. But I, I think I would encourage you as you read, again, some very familiar scriptures and potentially reading them in their context for the first time, because we can be really bad at pulling single sentences out of a letter from Paul away from his context, you know, and then we, and I, I don't want to say we totally change its meaning, but it, I think it does lose something when we're not reading these things, you know. Because Paul, Paul usually structures these letters as pretty carefully crafted arguments. And so if you pull out something from the middle that does not include his kind of starting proposition or his conclusion, you know, it's like, all right, well, that's kind of like an if you've pulled the pie out of the oven before it's fully baked, you know, it still is an apple pie and you can tell where it's headed, but it isn't actually the finished thing and you probably shouldn't eat it. And so I think it's good. It's just always good to read scripture as much as we're able in in bigger portions, not just, you know, in little snippets, because there is something that's lost in that. You know, and I think that, yes, Galatians is about pushing back against this idea that we can earn our salvation, but Paul never uses those words. And so when we actually read Galatians, we find that, that the issue that he's facing is that there are these other missionaries, other wandering teacher kind of prophet figures like him, who are it seems, basically following behind Paul, you know, so he establishes a Christian community in a town, then he moves down the road to the next place, and then, you know, who knows how long, a few days, a few weeks, a few months later, these other teachers arrive, or are there already, they may not actually be traveling around, but they may just be prominent Jewish Christians who, once Paul's gone, you know, kind of reassess what he said, And they're basically telling the churches in Galatia that, yes, faith in Jesus is part of it, but that to really become part of God's people, you have to be circumcised. You have to submit yourself to the law of Moses. And I think right there maybe is is sort of the source of the confusion around what Paul's points are, what Paul is really talking about in Galatians, is that I think we, 2,000 years later as modern Westerners, we tend to be very individualistic. And so often our only concern is, how do I personally get to heaven? That's not a bad thing to wonder about. I personally want to go to heaven, you know. But Paul, speaking to a different cultural setting, isn't, isn't even, it's not that he's, he's not wanting to talk about how do individuals go to heaven, but rather to say, how do people, how do individuals join into the covenant family of God, all of whom will be with God in the end, right? That adds a few extra steps to it. And so I think I understand why often Paul's kind of complicated ideas are collapsed down into sort of the two-dimensional, just, you know, tell me in, in two minutes, how do I personally get to heaven? Um, but I think that there, I think the reason why that's important to point out is that for these, for these early generations of Christians, it was not primarily a theological issue for them, you know, just that people were telling them to, that they also had to do some stuff to get to heaven. It was actually much more of what we would call a social or an interpersonal issue that these Jewish Christians were putting barriers in front of Gentile Christians and saying, well, 
you actually, as you are, as a Gentile person, you cannot be part of God's people. You have to become a Jewish person. Because that's really what they're talking about. You have to take on the markers of Jewish identity. Circumcision would be at the top of the list. Food laws would be close afterwards, you know, and, and some of the other the uh, other obediences to the law of Moses. You have to become a Jewish person in order to become a member of God's covenant people. And I think that Paul is saying, no, not that circumcision or food laws are bad, you know, and, and Paul's consistent about that through all of his letters to, Juda- to Judean people. Yes, follow the law if you want. That's great. You don't have to stop being Jews to become Christians, you know, but that also means that these Greek and Galatian and Parthian people don't have to stop being what they are to become Christian. You know, they don't have to leave behind to some extent, you know, and, and, and he also emphasizes new creation in Galatians, right? That circumcision or uncircumcision isn't what matters. What matters is new creation. And so in some sense, Paul's saying God is receiving us as the people we are, as the people he's created us, and turning us into a new type of person. So it's not that Jewish Christians have to leave behind their Jewish identity to become Gentiles or vice versa, but rather, and Paul talks a bit more about this in Ephesians, which we'll get to in a later week, that that he that God is taking both Jews and Gentiles and turning them into a new sort of person, into redeemed, reconciled people. And in, in part of Paul's defense for this, reasoning for this, and he, he goes back to the story of Abraham, you know, and he makes clear that Abraham trusted God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that's it. This was before Abraham was circumcised. This was before Moses had gotten any laws. This is before anybody kept the Sabbath. Like, so before any of the distinctives of what it meant to be a Jewish person existed, Abraham belonged to God in this covenant faithfulness and Abraham's whole family, those who would come from him. And Paul talks about this more in Romans that that a child of a, a true child of Abraham is not simply someone descended from him by blood. We know that because Ishmael, Abraham's first son, firstborn son, is not considered to be part of the covenant family. So blood descent is not the thing. It is this the shared faithfulness, right? That that Abraham is our father in faith, you know, so that even though I personally cannot trace a bloodline back to Abraham, I can still test consider myself a member of Abraham's family because I share in that same faith in Yahweh in the Creator's promises that Abraham had. You know, and I and 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 that in Jesus we see the fulfillment of these promises to Abraham. All the way back in Genesis 12, Yahweh tells Abraham, I'm going to bless your family, and so that all the nations may find blessing in you and in your seed, in your progeny. And so Paul's saying, look, we're, we've seen this happen, that in the Messiah, Jesus, God has fulfilled that promise to Abraham. And so the nations now have a way, you know, that, that this was the whole point of Abraham's family throughout all these centuries was to be a blessing to the Gentiles, to be a light to the nations. And in Jesus, that has happened. And so now Paul, as the bearer of that message, as the bearer of that good news, is going forth into these Gentile communities and and telling them that and proclaiming the good news. And so Jewish identity is not bad at all. You know, and and the, the, the ways that they mark themselves different from other people are not are also not bad but it is wrong to insist that these other people take on those those same markers for themselves because that's just not what the good news is about 
um, that the law, the law of Moses was good for what it was good for, but it's done now. Jesus has fulfilled it and we're no longer under those, those same covenant obligations. But we are still under the, the, the same covenant with Abraham. I mean, that's what Jesus has fulfilled and that's what Jesus has carried forward. You know, and so I think for us, and obviously, you know, there's so much that could be unpacked here, but I think that as I was reflecting on it, you know, one of the things that struck me was, you know, that Galatians very much, it, it was helpful. It's been helpful to read the whole Bible at a go here. And, and since it's only been a, you know, a month or so since we've left the Old Testament behind and Ezra and Nehemiah, you know, end the Old Testament with sort of these controversies about, well, who do, who really does belong as to God's people and how do you belong to God's people? And we, Clayton and I remarked on this in several different ways, you know, that you have this separation between kind of the rich elite Judean people like Ezra and Nehemiah coming back from Babylon, you know, but then you have all the Judean peasants who were left to actually tend the land, you know, that Ezra, the book of Ezra refers to as the people of the land. And there seems to be some tension between these groups just because the elites coming back from Babylon aren't quite sure if the people of the land have kept themselves from, you know, mixing with the Gentile peoples. And do they really count as Jewish people or not? You know, and and the whole divorce thing that happens at the end of Ezra. And so it's just, you know, we talked then that we can see that they're setting up the setting the stage for what we would see in Jesus's day between the the Southern Judeans and the, excuse me, kind of the Northern Judeans in Galilee, and especially between the Judeans and the Samarians who considered themselves part of God's covenant people, but, but were rejected by the other Judeans. And I think you see it carry through here now that, that the Judean parts of these Christian communities were still mightily struggling with who gets to be part of the people of God. What do you have to do to become part of the people of God? And Paul, you know, and, and what's interesting about this is that it's not that it's it's not that it's something new, right? But it's but Paul, and because he goes back to Abraham, he goes back, you know, to to the Garden of Eden, to say, look, this whole thing, the choice that God chose Abraham, it was not based on anything Abraham did or anything Abraham was. God just chose him, you know, and so the God, the grace of God acts before we do anything. Meaning that God has always just saved people. Like he's the one who brings people into his people. We do not have to be the gatekeepers of that. You know, so I think for us in the modern church, I mean, we have some careful, I think, consideration to do. I think we have some repenting to do about, you know, how how are we insisting, you know, that people must act or what cultural markers must they adopt in order to really truly belong to the people of God. You know, I think about that for Calvary and, you know, so much of this runs under the surface, right? Cultural uh, expectations so often do until somebody runs into one, you know, or until somebody transgresses a rule, you know, and uh, I was thinking about this the other day because I was, you know, in one of these things, and I, I don't think this is specific to Calvary, it's specific to, I think, many churches, you know, across the country, but just this idea that, you know, for the most part, churches, our sorts of churches do not have like homeless people or like desperately poor people coming to them. And there's many reasons for that. Often those sorts of people can't make it because they don't have their own vehicles and we don't live in a place with tr- with transport infrastructure. And so if you don't have your own car, you're not going to make it here. 
you know, but I don't know. I just, I think about that of like, yeah, you know, if somebody showed up off the street, wanted to come to church, we would let them, obviously, like we wouldn't probably, you know, we wouldn't stop them at the door. But like, you know, let's say that a person does that and they're filthy and they stink it's like, all right, I mean, we'd be okay with that for a Sunday or two, but at some point, you know, people are going to be nervous with that sort of a person around with kids. We're going to want that person to start cleaning themselves, you know, before they come into the building. And I don't know. I just think it's worth, and of course, this is all hypothetical, you know, this, and I'm not accusing anybody of anything. It's just, as I was kind of reflecting on all of this, I think it's just worth thinking through in our imaginations, like, all right, what if this sort of person showed up? What would we, how would we handle that? What if this sort of person showed up not just to visit for a Sunday, but immediately wanted to be intimately involved in the life of our church? It's like, yeah, there would be some challenges. There would be some challenges associated with that. So also we get into the book of Thessalonians and I'm about out of time here. So I, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to comment very much on this. Um, y'all can read these letters. And again, if, as you have questions, you know, we're, we're still willing to take questions. It's been months and months since anybody's actually sent in a question. Um, I know that almost everybody has, has fallen off the read the whole Bible in a year wagon, or a lot of the people who are still on it don't listen to the podcast, which is fine. I mean, at this point, we're just so close to the end that we'll just go ahead and record these, these last few weeks of the podcast, whether anybody's listening or not. Um, you know, but I will just say with Thessalonians that, that the situation that Paul's writing to is different. And so it seems like the church in Thessalonica isn't so much dealing with what does it really mean to be part of God's people, but rather, you know, a, a, initially it seems First Thessalonians was written because Paul had had to leave the town so quickly that he was worried that the, the, the little group of Christians that he had formed basically weren't going to be able to take deep root and were going to fall away because of persecution or you know, or whatever else. So kind of, he sent Timothy to kind of check on them. Timothy brings back a very encouraging report that the Thessalonian Christians are standing firm in the faith. And so then Paul writes first Thessalonians really to congratulate them, but I think also to, to just try and address some of these, these issues. And I would really, I, I think I would boil it down. And anytime you boil it down that you, you know, you always leave something out, but I think my reading would be there's kind of two main threads to what Paul's saying in First and Second Thessalonians. The first one would be both to commend them and then also to instruct them in how to remain firm in faith in Jesus, kind of in the midst of history, you know. And so life is happening; they're living in hostile territory in the middle of the Roman Empire, you know, which is beginning to pay more and more attention to these these budding Jesus communities uh, and not happy attention, you know. And so just how do we remain faithful in the midst of wars and rumors of wars and famines and plagues and, and neighborly hostility and just life, you know. And that's, I mean, obviously we're also trying to remain faithful to Jesus in the midst of history. And so there's obviously a lot of wisdom and instruction there for us as well. But with Thessalonians, sort of uniquely, I mean, Paul talks about the end of the end of the end of end of the age and the coming of Jesus in in different ways throughout his letters. But the Thessalonian letters are kind of unique in that they have a big emphasis on the end of the age and 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 what it will be like. I shouldn't say that, but just sort of 
uh, training, not even training, I think just trying to instill in the church a confident hope that history has an end and that we know kind of the broad outlines of what that end will be, that Jesus will return you know, in a in a way in which he is he is visible and available. You know, in, s- in such a way that he is not now. That the dead will be resurrected. That the faithful people will be transformed. That there will be a judgment at which point evil will be punished and judged, and there won't be any more after that. You know, and that and that heaven and earth will become one again. You know, that that it won't just be the Garden of Eden or the Tabernacle or Jesus Himself that is the joining together of heaven and earth, but the entire creation will. Be renewed and raised, and and joined together into the life of heaven, you know. And obviously, there are many specific details and things that we could pluck out, you know, and, and I think want to know more about. Uh, but I I think it's it's probably more important for us just to to take the big picture in stride, right? That Paul's saying, have the hope, have the confidence that we know what the end of history is. We don't know all the details, the twists and turns of how we're going to get there. But we do know where it is that we're headed. And so that informs us, that gives us a foundation to stand on, you know, that it, it's kind of like we have one foot in the future, really, as Christians. We have one foot in the future, we have one foot in the present. We don't really have three feet, but and we even kind of have a foot in the past, you know, or it's like you think of a game of Twister, you know, that we're, we're kind of, we're ideally we're dwelling you know, uh, in kind of all three of those places that we're remembering what God has done in the past, but we're also anticipating what he's going to do in the future and that we can be sure, even if we don't know all the the details of of how all these things are going to work out, we know that God will raise his people, will be present with us, you know, forever in a forever way. Um, fully and and that we can look forward to that confidently and hopefully as we're living in the midst of history which i think obviously you know has a lot of traction for us today we're because we're in the exact same spot two thousand years later and we're still waiting for jesus to return you know and i've commented before that just in my own life of faith you know just really it's just really sobering to me that we've now we have now waited longer than any of god's people have waited before you know abraham waited a couple decades you know before his children were born the israelites in egypt were in captivity for only 400 years you know the people of god had seven or eight hundred years to wait for their messiah and now here we are two thousand years in two thousand years of christian waiting you know, for the Messiah to, to reappear, and and I believe He will. But it is it's just it's just kind of a sobering thing, um, and uh, and I think that that is part of the Holy Spirit's message to the church through Thessalonians is, be hopeful, be confident. These things will happen. We don't know when, and we're not really necessarily supposed to know when. You know, I think that the, the prophecy chasing sort of a thing. You know, I don't think it's evil, but I think it can ultimately be fruitless. We, we just don't know, and I don't know how useful it is to try and predict uh, specific things or, or when specific things are going to happen. But so that's Galatians and Thessalonians. Obviously, a lot more can be said uh, if you read these things and have questions or, or things that you want uh, just kind of processed in a, in a deeper way. Then please do get in touch. You can email or text us, and we'll talk about that. Otherwise, this has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's.